Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. If you're visiting with us or you're just having some holiday chaos-induced amnesia, we're, we're in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in, in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. That's some of my favorite parts is watching the kids run out. Um, the, the joy on their face. Uh, so Luke's Gospel, remember it's organized in a way that Luke is... He's showing us that Jesus is the, the greater Adam or the last Adam. You know, Adam in, his, in the garden uh, with his sin plunged the world, humanity and the world into sin and misery. And Jesus, he passes the test in the wilderness when he's tempted. He passes the test and then he, he starts his ministry in Galilee and he starts plundering the spoil of Satan. He's healing disease. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving sin. And the first nine chapters of Luke take us through that Galilean ministry. And then around the end of Luke 9, Luke 10, there's a shift. Jesus, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He sets his face to go to the cross to die. And he even lets his disciples know that this, this journey to Jerusalem would end in his death and that he would be handed over to the priests and the teachers and that they would give him over. And so it's no wonder that since he's on this concentrated journey to Jerusalem that he would be met with, with much hostility because Satan is trying to hinder him from going to do and accomplish the great plan of redemption. And so we're going to see that in our passage today. In tragic irony, the, the, the great um, confrontation, the people that had the most trouble with Jesus were the experts, the experts of the law, the experts in Torah. And we see here that they're going to, they're going to come up against Jesus and they try to hinder him. You know, these men, they were men who had a title in society, and they loved the praise of men. But we know, based on the, the passage a few weeks ago that Richard preached, the Pharisees and the law, the, the law teachers, the scribes, they were, their hearts were a barren land. They had, no, they had no root that would produce fruit. They, they were trying to um, earn their righteousness by keeping the law. And so we saw Jesus, he, pro he pronounced three woes upon the Pharisees. And he showed them that it's not the, the cleaning of the outside that's needed, it's the cleaning of the inside. You need a new heart. We need a new heart. And so after he, after he confronts the Pharisees, a lawyer stands up to confront Jesus. The lawyer was offended and he tells Jesus... Uh, I'm offended at what you've, what you've said here. And he gives Jesus a chance to kind of clear the air, clear things up. Make sure you're not offending us too. And we'll see from this passage that Jesus does not clear the air. He doubles down. He pushes it a step further. And so let's read Luke eleven forty five 45 through 54. <clears throat> this is God's word. 
One of the lawyers answered him, answered Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you, so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged to this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this is a, a heavy passage. We see here people who, they knew your word well, but yet they were missing the key. They were missing Jesus. There's a way to know your word and not see Christ, please help us to see Christ. Help us to share Christ. Conform us into his image this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> and so we see in this passage that the teachers of the law, that they were adhering to and teaching a damnable religion. They were leading others to do the same. They were, they were burdening people with man-made laws. They were honoring God with their lips only. And they were hiding the key. The key of knowledge. And so first, let's see. This damnable religion, it burdens others. In verse 46, we see, And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers, for you load, the, you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so here we have the experts in the law, the ones who earned a living to teach. I need to take heed to this. But we all do. These experts in the law, they were adding things. They were adding things to the law. And in those days, the teacher's interpretation was actually lifted above the Scriptures at times because it was believed that none of anybody out here, you, you didn't know how to interpret the Scriptures, and so only the teacher knew. And so whatever he said, you had to do it. And this is where we come up. We, uh, we see this phrase, the traditions of the elders. And, and um, Richard spoke to it a little bit a few weeks ago. And we see that Jesus confronted them with one of these man-made traditions in verse 38. When Jesus was invited to this party at the Pharisee's house, they were appalled that he didn't go through the whole ceremonial cleansing, the washing of his hands. 
Now, this wasn't, this wasn't so much cleanliness like Jonah coming into the house covered in mud and we're telling him to wash up that it's gross to eat without water. That's not what it's talking about. We're talking about just some, some ceremonial washing. He wasn't doing it. And they were appalled. They were astonished. He was violating one of their many purity laws. And, and if you go through and you search through the Mishnah and search through all these laws that they had incorporated, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds. You couldn't walk more than two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath, according to them. You couldn't, you couldn't light a candle on the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath, but you could pay a Gentile to do it. You couldn't look into a mirror on a fixed mirror on a fixed wall. That's my southern draw coming out, mirror. You couldn't look into a mirror on the wall or you break the Sabbath, according to them. And so you see these many things, these tedious rules that they had. And the lawyers, they would find a way, uh, a loophole to where they didn't have to obey like everyone else. They could pay the Gentile to light the candle. They would just change their landmarker so they could walk more than two-thirds of a mile. You weren't supposed to tie a certain type of knot on the end of a bucket to dip it down in a well, but they, they figured out a way you could take a woman's head covering off and tie the rope to it and tie it to the bucket. You see, they, they were just looking for loopholes. And this sounds crazy to us, but are we any better? Are we tempted to add man-made rules and lift them up equal to God's Word? Certainly. You know, there's nothing new under the sun, and we've got to be careful not to add rules and regulations to the people in the congregation and bind their conscience. You know, think about some things that you may have grown up hearing or you may believe yourself now. I mean, do we have to dress a certain way to be acceptable to God on, on Sunday morning? I mean, certainly there are ways that we can dress that are offensive and wrong, but do we have to have the suit and tie or is it a sin not to? Um, can we use instruments in worship? And if we can use instruments, what kind can we use? Is the King James Version the only acceptable English translation of the Bible? Or is the ESV the only acceptable English translation of the Bible? Can women wear pants? Can you have a glass of wine? Can you, um, do you need to send your kids to public school, private school, or homeschool? I mean, these are things that we need to think through and we want to have convictions about, but they can't be things that we add up and lift up as equal to the law and say, you must do this to be acceptable to God. And one in which, um, I mean, it, it's, it's a hot topic in society now, whether or not you vote Republican or Democrat, we cannot say, if, if you vote Republican, you're a sinner. If you vote Democrat, you're a sinner. We cannot lift that up equal to God's law. But I'm not saying that, like, like I said, we, have, we need to have convictions and we need to think through what we do and hopefully our convictions are based on prayerful meditation on God's Word, on counsel with other Christians. But let's be careful lest we heap burdens upon one another and weigh people down, just like these teachers of the law were doing. And, and maybe we're not, you know, certainly I'm, I'm sure there are, there are ways that we add, but, but think of this. I think this is easier to do in my life. Am I patient with my children when I'm, when I'm discipling them? Uh, am I patient with my wife? 
Am I patient with my brothers and sisters? You know, we need to be careful about this, that, that there, there's a way that we can speak Christian language and not help the people, not lift one finger to help the people to walk in the way. And I think this is kind of a silly example, but it, it popped in my head. I know that's a famous man's last words, but we'll, we'll go with it. Um, when uh, my boys, for Christmas, they got a hitting lesson with, with the great Tanner Allen from Mississippi State. And it was fun. I mean, the main thing was we just wanted, they just wanted to meet their hero, right? And this isn't an indictment on Tanner, but, but I just I noticed that it's easy for a baseball player who knows the game to spit out the verbiage to a child, and they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, keep your hands inside the ball. Stay through the ball. You know, stop swinging under the ball. I mean, even stuff like that. Like, if, if we don't get up and show them, they're not going to know. And in the same way in our Christian life, we can say, walk by the Spirit. Pray. Evangelize. But we need to help people. We need to lift a finger to help people walk in those ways. So let's lead not just by word, but by word and deed. But this wasn't the only problem with the teachers of the law. In verses 47 through 51, they were, they were giving lip service to God while their, their hearts were far from Him. And so here they were, these, uh, these teachers of the law, they were building these memorials to the prophets of old. The old prophets that their fathers killed. They're memorializing them. They're acting as if they love these prophets, but really it's a virtue signal to show off this false piety. In Matthew's gospel, they even said, uh, Jesus said, they said, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So we've got to be careful for what uh, C.S. Lewis and others have said. This is chronological snobbery. To look back in, in history and condemn our forefathers for things. It's right to look back and see sinful acts and condemn them, but it's to look back and see it and then say, I wouldn't have done that. I would never have done such a thing. That's what they were doing. They're memorializing these prophets, looking back in history and saying, we wouldn't have done that. And, and look, like I said, we need to look back. There are things that we need to learn from and not repeat, and we condemn. But as we do that, we cry out to the Lord and we say, Lord, reveal any sinful way in me. Reveal my heart, Lord. May I not repeat the sins of my forefathers. But I need the Lord's help. There was no humility in these teachers. J.C. Ryle, he said that it's easier to admire a dead prophet than a living one. So I got to thinking, it, it, it doesn't much matter. It doesn't so much matter what we think about Augustine and Athanasius and John Calvin and Martin Luther and Elizabeth Elliot and Corey Ten Boom. Francis Grimke, all these, all these saints of the past, it doesn't so much matter what we think about them. What do you think about the person sitting next to you? How do you treat them? The one five rows up. The one that you may avoid every Sunday to avoid the awkward conversation. How do we treat our brothers and sisters at St. John's 
at, at North Greenwood, at First Pres, at New Green Grove, you name it. Beware, lest we praise all those saints of old to signal a false piety and cover up the present disdain that we have for the people in this congregation or the people in this community. It's easy to love a dead prophet because they, they don't walk with you and see you straying and come and hopefully confront you in love. They don't do that. They may confront us as we read, but it's a one-way conversation. Like we, we, we don't have to be held accountable. But with someone who's in the present, who's with you, they can hold you accountable. It's easy to honor the dead because we don't have to engage with them in the messiness that is a relationship. So we can praise God with our lips all we want, but if there is no love for our neighbor, then we have a hollow, damnable religion, just like these teachers. The teachers of the law, they praised the prophets of old with their lips and their monuments, but they rejected the great prophet Jesus. And that shows that they that they were hypocrites because they said we love these prophets, but it's those prophets that spoke about Jesus and it's he that they were rejecting. They rejected the great prophet Jesus, the one to whom all other prophets pointed to. But Jesus, he said, they would not go unpunished for this. Verses 50 through 51, Jesus says that all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, all of their blood would be on this generation. Not only was it on the fathers who did the killing, but it was on them because they had the same wicked heart that their fathers had. And Dale Ralph Davis, he even brings it into our generation. He says this phrase, this generation, it's more of a character indicator than it is a time indicator. This generation, it's those people who, who don't believe, those people who reject Jesus, even in the present. Those who reject Jesus fall into this category in the blood of Abel to Zechariah and all the prophets in between cry out for their condemnation. And this, this behavior doesn't catch Jesus off guard. He, he says in verse 49 that the wisdom of God says that, that he would send his prophets to the people and that they, prophets and apostles to the people, and that they would kill some and persecute others. This was not catching Jesus off guard, and this is where we see the marriage of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. These people were guilty for what they were doing, yet it was prophesied that it would happen. And so later in Luke, Jesus even tells the parable. He tells a parable of the wicked tenants, which we'll get to in, in, in some weeks, and he includes himself he says, not only will they kill the people sent to them, they will even kill the son. And this really frustrates them. But we'll get to that in, in, a few, in a few weeks. And so, the natural bent of our hearts is to heap burdens on ourselves and on others, man-made rules, and to also, the natural bent is to honor God with our lips and our hearts be far from him. But Jesus gets to the climax of the rebuke here. And this, this is the last point. This is where we'll close. Jesus gets to the climax of the, re, the rebuke. 
And this is really where all of the other emptiness stems from. These teachers were hiding the key of knowledge. We could even say they were hiding the keys of the kingdom, the key to eternal life. They themselves were not using it, and they were also hiding it from others. And as I was thinking, through, it's, it's really, it's, it's so hard for our finite minds to, to really grasp the weight of what is being said here. You've got to really work to do it, to see it. I mean, can you, have, can you imagine a doctor having a cure for cancer and in pride withholding it from the people? Actually giving them something that sped up the cancer, that made things worse? You know, this would be, this would be tragic, and yet the law teachers were doing something infinitely more devastating. They're dealing with the soul. They're shutting the door of heaven in people's faces. And I know we good Presbyterians, we believe in divine sovereignty and that God will save His people, but He uses means to His ends. He uses means to accomplish His ends. And He was, he was using these people Someone has to share the gospel for someone to hear it and believe it. And these people were withholding the key. Jesus came in the beginning of Luke. We see in that great song of Zechariah. Jesus came to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the key. He is the key of knowledge. He is the key to eternal life. He is the one to whom all other scriptures are pointing to. That in, in these Pharisees and teachers, they were rejecting him and teaching others to do the same. They were seeking to justify themselves by scrupulous adherence to the law and to the traditions. You remember back in Luke 10, 25, when the lawyer stood up to test Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, surely in that moment, that man knew that he had not done all that because he sought to justify himself. He then says, who's my neighbor? He's trying to weasel out of it. Who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was their MO. They're trying to justify themselves. Later in Luke, we're going to see a Pharisee praying, and he's saying, God, thank you that you didn't make me like these people. Thank you. I'm so holy. Thank you, Lord. And then you have that, that hated tax collector that's beating his chest and he won't even look to heaven. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, he's justified. He sees it. He sees that he's a sinner. He sees that he needs Jesus. But these teachers, these Pharisees, they just saw your sin. And they saw their holiness, or pseudo-holiness. They didn't use the law properly. As we heard from our reading in 1 Timothy there's, this morning, there's a way to use it wrongly. The law is meant to reveal the sinful heart and all the ways in which we've fallen short of the glory of God. And then, like a good schoolmaster, the law leads us to Christ. You see that you failed. You have not obeyed it from the heart. Here's Christ, the perfect law keeper. 
Anyone who teaches any other way of salvation is shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Every other religion on the face of this world, every one of them, go study it, they teach work salvation. You go follow the eightfold path of Buddhism or the way of works, knowledge, and devotion of Hinduism. Or go to Islam and you just you do good deeds and you hope your good deeds outweigh your bad. It's like this divine scale and then we just hope God will show mercy. And then you line up those that, that claim the name of Christ, that teach faith plus works equals salvation. Or that we come to Jesus to get health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, you, you see, I, I've seen many of those televangelists, you know, just burdening people by telling them to send them money to unlock the key or to have the key to unlock the kingdom. This is slamming the door in people's faces. We can also hide the key by saying you can, we can just live however we want to. We just doesn't matter. Just, you know, just we're following Jesus, but you, hey, sin on. And I know nobody says it to that extreme, but there are, there are people who think that it does not matter that we follow Jesus and that we, owe, that we obey him. But we obey him out of gratitude for his salvation. There's many ways that we can hide the key. And you won't find a more zealous bunch than the Pharisees and teachers but they had a zeal, according to Paul, they had a zeal without knowledge, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. They rejected Jesus and they hid the key of knowledge. But we know, hopefully, we know that Jesus, he is that promised prophet, that promised seed, the promised priest and king, the, the suffering servant who came to take the sins of his people upon himself. He's the righteous branch who lived a perfect righteous life and imputes his righteousness to those who would believe. The one that the prophets talked about. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true bread of heaven. He is the doorway through which we enter and the key by which we unlock the door. And these experts, they should have known that. But you know what they said about him in his lifetime? When Jesus forgave sins, they said, blasphemy. This man is a blasphemer. When he healed diseases, they say he heals diseases by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's possessed. When he ate with tax collectors and sinners to save them, they said he's a drunkard and a glutton. And when presented with the option of freeing Barabbas, the, the well-known sinner, or Jesus, they chose Barabbas. Pilate even knew Jesus is sinless. This man, this man is sinless. I don't want his blood on my hands. And again, in, in just sick prophetic irony, the people cried out, may his blood be on our hands and on our children. 
while he was dying on the cross, they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Oh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down. If he comes down off the cross, we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if God desires him. For he has said, I'm the son of God. And surely, we look at these statements, we hear them, and we think, how sick. And we should condemn the behavior, but don't think for a moment that we wouldn't have been right there with them. With every high-handed sin that we commit, we say, free Barabbas, kill Jesus. And little did they know that Jesus, by staying up there, he was actually saving humanity. He was saving others by not saving himself. He, as the true king, he stayed on the cross so that we might believe in him and his work. He was conquering sin and Satan as he took our sins upon himself and he bore God's wrath due us. He indeed is the son of God who was trusting the father in that moment not to deliver him so that he could deliver us. He was accomplishing the eternal plan of redemption. And brothers and sisters, surely we are, we're all guilty of practicing uh, damnable religion. We have heaped burdens on ourselves. We've heaped burdens on others. We've given lip service to God. We've, lived, we've given lip service to God and lived like practical atheists. I'm sure there's been a time where I've distorted the gospel message and you've distorted the gospel message and we've, in a sense, hidden the key from others. And all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, they cry out for our condemnation. There's no hiding it. It's a constant refrain of guilty. And if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus, this is your present condition. And so I beg you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put it off. Don't wait to another day. Paul says today is the day of salvation. Believe in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf. And if you're a believer, if you do believe in Jesus, you have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the, to, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and you have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel cries out for our condemnation, but Jesus' blood cries out for our righteousness, our forgiveness. Always. If you're a believer, that blood doesn't wash. It doesn't wash off. Perfect, spotless, righteous. So let's, as we go out, let us not heap burdens on others, but bear one another's burdens and point one another to the one who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. 
We've all paid lip service to God, but Jesus, he honored God with his lips and with every action of his life. And if you believe in this, his perfect righteousness is credited to you. So now in gratitude, let's seek to live a life that not only honors God with our lips, but honors him with our life. And heaven forbid, we let go of the key. Hold, he holds on to us, right? Christ holds on to us. But, but we hold on to the key by faith. Hold on to the key that, as, that is Jesus and share him with others. Share him with a lost and dying world that they may enter the kingdom of heaven as well. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you so much for the sacraments that, that we get to partake, we get to eat and drink. Lord, knowing that we are yours and you are ours, remind us this morning, Lord, that, that you are the true key, that you are the one that all the scriptures point to, and may we teach that to others as well. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.